Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Ron Baker, the founder of the Verisage Institute, a leading think tank dedicated to educating professionals globally. Ron is the host of the Voice America program, The Soul of the Enterprise, is the author of seven best-selling books, and has toured the world, spreading the value pricing message to professionals and trusted advisors. Ron, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into who you are personally? Well, thanks, Nicole. I'm glad to be here. Um, I guess I started my CPA career in a big eight accounting firm. So that's how you can figure out my age. So you can carbon data, CPA, you listen to how they refer to the big eight, big four, big five, whatever. I started in a big eight in San Francisco. And after two and a half years, I started my own firm. I live in the wine country in Northern California. And I learned really fast running my own firm, because you have to wear all the hats, that hourly billing was a lousy customer experience. And I wanted to try something different. Now, this was in 1989. There was nobody on the circuit. There were no books, nobody talking about this. And me and my partner just decided to try this. And we did. It worked incredibly well. I wrote a course about it, started teaching colleagues, fellow CPAs about it. And then I wrote a book in 98 that kind of took off around the world. And I guess the rest is history. And it kind of got me to where I am doing this. I don't practice anymore, but that's kind of my my background and how I dropped into this. I've had the pleasure of reading some of your work and hearing some of the interviews you've done. You talk about value pricing as, you know, a topic and there's a lot of sayings. You talk about your mission to really eliminate the timesheet and hourly billing. Before we dive into that, for some of our listeners, since we have so many global listeners specifically, can you give us a definition of value pricing and how that differs from hourly billing? Value pricing basically means to price commensurate with the value you are creating for the customer before you do the work. And that's a really key point. Pricing is done before you do the work, whereas billing takes place after the work has already been performed. That's why when people say value billing, I know they don't really understand it because there's no such thing as value billing. That's that's billing in arrears. Value pricing means pricing up front. Nicole, it's the way that we purchase everything else in our lives as human beings. We know the price before we buy something. There's very few things. In fact, I can think of nothing where you're spending your own money on yourself where you don't know the price before you buy. And hourly billing violates that law of buying law of economics, law of customer psychology, laws of marketing. It violates those laws at a professional's peril to bill in arrears. When would you rather find out that the customer doesn't like your price? Before you do the work or after? I'd rather find out before. A big part of value pricing, and we don't suggest that firms use the term value pricing with their customers. We prefer fixed price, like a fixed rate mortgage, because customers like certainty. They like risk reduction. We're big advocates of saying fixed price or open price or set price. I've seen it called all sorts of different things. The big thing is that you're pricing up front before you do the work. That price is set commensurate with the value to the 
customer. How did we get here? We can talk about the history of it. The better question is, why are we here? Why is this industry set in this process of using hourly billing? You know, bad ideas die hard. Bad ideas stick around for a long, long, long time. And this is a really bad idea that came about in law firms first in 1919 was the first law firm that both instituted both the billable hour and hourly billing and the timesheet. And that was inspired by Frederick Winslow Taylor and the scientific management revolution was was a complete fraud. I won't go through that history with you. Suffice it to say that hourly billing is easy. We've taught the customers to live with it, even though they don't like it. You know, people think that the customer demanded this. That's absolute nonsense. There's been no pricing history, pricing change in the history of commerce that that didn't start on the supply side. Customers don't change a business's pricing paradigm. Businesses change it. That's part of business model innovation. And that, that's supply side driven, not demand side driven. So customers never ask for this. And, it's, and the customers love it when firms offer them the ability of selecting a fixed price, especially if you include options. But I think we're stuck here because this is a theory of a business model in the professions, whether it's lawyers, accountants, whatever. And those theories die hard. You know, doctors for centuries used a lancet to draw blood out of people, even though it was completely medically inefficacious. It didn't work at all. In fact, it did more harm than good. But yet it stuck around for centuries. This is probably going to stick around past my lifetime. That's part of my answer for why it's hung around as long as it has. As I've talked to other professionals on left foot, I've asked the question about fixed pricing or alternative pricing arrangements. You know, I've heard responses like no one wins when there's a fixed price or some type of fixed arrangements. I've also heard that the client didn't ask for it, so why should I offer? One of my favorites, it's too difficult to represent a client effectively if we're constantly looking at the bottom line and making decisions based on the bottom line. That's some of the feedback we hear from the professional. I gather that most of the clients are really looking for a fixed fee price, to your point earlier, because that's the way they manage the rest of their business. Do you have any thoughts on those statements? Or I'm sure you've heard it all. Is there any reason that professionals should be concerned about using a fixed fee model? Those statements are nonsense. First off, let's deal with the first one. Nobody wins. All transactions, both sides win. Otherwise, you wouldn't buy. If you went to Starbucks today and bought a latte for $4, you only bought it because it was worth more than $4. It's why, Nicole, have you ever thought about this phenomenon, which I think is absolutely fascinating, the double thank you moment in a transaction when the Starbucks barista hands you the coffee, says thank you, and you say thank you back. Why? Because you both walk away with a profit. And that profit's not recorded by accountants. We tell the world that debits equal credits, which in the real world, that's not at all true because the customer's making a profit as well. So the idea that nobody wins is absolutely ludicrous. This is having the customer win up front before they purchase your service. The clients don't ask for it. Well, you know, the clients didn't ask for the automobile. They didn't ask for the iPad. I mean, innovation takes customers by surprise. That's what's so great about it. If you're only giving customers what they ask for, you're going to be woefully behind in terms of technology, customer experience, and all of that. And then this idea that, you know, it's hard to represent a customer if you're constantly looking at the bottom line. That's what the billable hour does. The billable hour keeps you focused on the bottom line and on the math of the moment rather than the relationship with the customer. And you can't build human relationships staring at clocks and then turning around and charging for it. Think about when a customer calls up and you know, has a half hour phone call with, with a professional and gets a $100, $200 bill and you spent the first 10 minutes talking about your kids. Customers know this. 
they understand that that's what makes them less you know likely to call you when they're trying to do something because the the billable hour focuses on the bottom line incessantly whereas if you offer a fixed price you just agree to it and then you get on and do the work and you keep the customer happy it's a much saner way and a much less stressful way to run a practice to quote a price up front and then just get on with the work and keep the customer happy. So I want to talk about some of the new models that are out there. But before we go there, what are you hearing in today's world around pricing? Greater comfort level with fixed fee, some kind of exempt day rate or week rate? What are the latest trends? Yeah, it's a great question. Pricing is actually, it's it's been a revolution in the rest of the business world since about the mid 80s. There's groups like the Professional Pricing Society out of Atlanta, Georgia, that actually certify professional pricers. There's universities now that offer degrees in pricing. You can get a PhD in revenue management. You can get an MBA in pricing. This is an absolute revolution in the rest of the business world. A lot of the Fortune 500 have entire pricing departments. UPS has 125 professional pricers. FedEx has 75. Airlines have theirs. Rental car companies, hotels. Major hotel chains have a director of revenue management on every major property. This is being given enormous, uh, you know, attention and investment and intellectual capital, creativity and innovation in the rest of the business world. All we're trying to do is bring some of these next practices to professionals kind of mired in this hundred year old model of we sell time. And then we're going to measure that by the hour, even though no customer buys time. I'm really encouraged. I think that just looking at this globally, tremendous progress that has been made helping firms across all professional sectors move away from hourly billing in the timesheet. Although I wouldn't say that the death of the timesheet and the billable hour are within reach, I would say they're definitely within sight. It's interesting. I've interviewed litigators. I've interviewed partners from AM Law 100 firms. And, you know, I've asked this question and many of them have said they are doing a lot of their work using a fixed pricing type of model or fixed fee, even in litigation, because they're saying, you know, I can look at the litigation of my clients, especially if it's a client they've had for a period of time. They can look at what's occurred in the prior few years. They can come up with a standard They can, of course, document what exceptions would look like. They definitely see that their clients are more comfortable with it because they can budget to it. Fantastic progress. Absolutely. The idea that attorneys can't offer fixed prices for litigation is crazy. I mean, I have earthquake insurance on my home and they give me a fixed price and yet they don't know the cost. They don't know when the next one's going to hit, the damage it's going to cause. It's called risk pricing. Actuaries do it for a living. It's not rocket surgery. I mean, it can be done. I've experienced the same thing with litigators. They're probably the number one group amongst attorneys that have moved to offering more fixed prices. A lot of these firms that say they do alternative fee arrangements, AFAs, they call them. It's still built on the billable hour. I call it hourly billing and drag because they're still computing the number of hours and that's not value pricing. Value pricing starts from value and works backwards. It doesn't build up from the number of hours or costs. That's an interesting point. You know, I've worked with or interviewed folks from Axiom and then a competitor of theirs, Priori. Both of those firms talk about buying time at either a lower rate or buying an outcome for a particular fee. When you do ask them how that works, it is taking what they estimate the cost will be and backing it into the number from the hours. That said, digging into the value, how would a firm begin their journey into value pricing? 
I think you need to establish a value council and put pricing in charge with a group that is good at it, who who finds the topic intellectually curious, just like these certified professional pricers at, at these big companies. That's all they do all day. They're not marketers. They're not cost accountants. They're not finance people. They're pricers. They're trying to align the value to the customer and the price that they capture from the customer. That's a pretty tall task because it touches everything inside the organization, sales, marketing, communication, even R&D. They need to be respectable leaders. I also think that there needs to be a chief value officer in firms, one person held accountable for pricing overall, one throat to choke. That's one of the most successful ways we've seen firms make this transition is they turn it over to people who are good at it. A lot of people who price in professional firms are lousy at it. And the funny thing is everybody knows if they're lousy at it, but they continue to let them do it. Well, if I was a lousy litigator or a lousy auditor, you wouldn't let me audit. You'd put me somewhere where I was strong. I mean, a business is built on strengths, not weaknesses. I think to turn pricing into a core competency, it needs to be turned over and centralized inside the firm. Uh, so that's the first big thing. The other thing is, is this is done one customer at a time. It's not done all at once, you know, cannonball into the pool. You put your little toe in the water and you do it one customer at a time. And that timeline varies by firm and type of clients, your work and all of that. But usually within a year, a year and a half, two years, you can make the transition fully if you're committed to it. And it definitely needs top managing partner or CEO support. You can't do this unless you have the support of top management. And that's another problem with professional firms because they tend to be partnerships and partnerships are consensus models, not leadership models. So I'd love to hear about a success story where you've seen value pricing implemented. But before we go there, what is the what do you think is the reason there's pushback in firms? Is it because they're used to the old way? Is there something more significant that drives the pushback? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things actually, and I haven't ranked order these, but certainly fear of change. You know, I know that's cliche that I mean I happen to think people like change. We go to different vacation spots. I think that's part of it. You've got an aging, the demographics of the professions, they're they're getting older, right? The baby boomers are aging. There is probably fear of some change. I also think the professionals tend to be risk adverse and more importantly, loss adverse. I often joke that if we could ensure like Lloyd's of London, a practice from any losses because of value pricing, more and more people would adopt it, right? So I think that's an issue. I also think that firms are incredibly inward focused. They only seem to care about what's easy for them, what's convenient for them, what matters to them. They don't look enough outside of their four walls and realize that value is created outside of their firms and it's the customer's experience that matters at the end of the day. They're way too inwardly focused. And I do believe that is because of hourly billing and the timesheet. And I also think they hold the wrong theory of value. They think that value is literally measured by time. It's absolutely ludicrous because nobody buys time. Nobody goes into a Porsche dealership and says, oh, what an awesome car, turns around to the salesman and says, can I see the timesheets on that? Who cares? I often say it's like when a friend or a colleague has a baby. You don't want to hear about the labor pains. You want to see the baby. If you think about professional firms who bill hourly, not only are they focusing on the labor pains, they're measuring them in six-minute contractions and then billing for them. And I think that takes our focus and our limited executive attention away from the baby. 
which is what the customer's really paying for. So I think all of those things, and there's probably more, lead to just the status quo. Plus, let's face it, it's good enough. You know, there's a great word that economists use called satisfice, sufficient and satisfy combined. And it basically means good enough. You know, this is good enough. We're not really out to optimize or maximize profitability. We're just going to do what's good enough. And I never discount humans are kind of lazy and take the path of least resistance. So I think there's some satisficing going on as well. It's interesting. And earlier you talked about technology being somewhat of a driver to transition to different types of pricing alternatives and hopefully value pricing. Possibly the billable hour came out of the fact that there weren't other ways we could determine value in some of these professions that were more complex. So today, with all the technology we have and the ability to not only track what we're doing down to a very minute amount, we can watch people experience something without them even knowing it, right? If you think about those folks that track our eyeballs and our actions through technology, how has technology played into this? Has technology been a big factor in speeding up the adoption of value pricing specifically or other alternative pricing? I think it has, just like technology really helped diffuse hourly billing because once the time and billing program came out, you just had everybody do timesheets, you inputted that, you spit out a bill and you, and you move on. It made that whole process very neat, very efficient. But now, What's happening is this cloud technology, you've got artificial intelligence, you've got deep learning machines like Watson and Ross for lawyers. You probably read Baker Hofstetler just hired uh, IBM's Ross to take over their bankruptcy practice. That's 50 lawyers that might lose their job. And let's face it, Watson and Ross can do things much quicker than a human can because they're simple, repetitive tasks. Same with bookkeeping, same with cloud technology, all these applications that people can get. It basically means a firm can do more in less time. Well, if your business model is we sell time, you're doomed because your revenue is going to go way down as you as you adopt this technology. It's why, by the way, a lot of firms don't like technology because they realize it's going to crush billable hours because it's going to enable them to do a lot more. And since your billable hour rate's not growing faster than the productivity from the adoption of this technology, that means your not only your revenue's going down, but your profitability's going down. You can't bill Watson out by the hour. That would be ludicrous. Watson can read 40,000 legal cases in, in about three seconds. Why would you want to bill that out by the hour? I think that is a big driver in these firms, and it's only going to get more intense as this technology improves. If you look at deep learning machines, that just beat the world's best Go player, that ancient Chinese Go game that's more, much more complicated than chess. The blockchain is another thing that's going to be incredibly disruptive. It adds another layer to the internet. It's basically a trust machine. It's a, it's a triple entry accounting system. That's going to displace a lot of auditors, accountants, possibly bookkeepers as well. So all of this technology is kind of creating the perfect storm to really disrupt the professional market. And that means... By definition, they're going to have to change their business model, just like the music industry has to, just like hotels have to because of Airbnb, just like taxis have to because of Uber. You know, it's business models that are completely disruptive. And this technology is really going to drive that forward, I think. That's a great point. And this whole idea of shared services, the shared services model, you're paying for the results. So what is Uber? What is Lyft? It's getting you from point A to point B. What is Airbnb? It's giving you that place to spend the night. It doesn't have to look like 
like what we think it looks like, which is a traditional hotel room. Same thing in the professional services space. They're looking for an outcome. The outcome can come through an axiom model where they're going on a a website and picking an outcome and then getting a lawyer assigned to them that's licensed to do what they need to do at a particular place or priori, where you go on and pick your own lawyer from three from a website and you're able to work with them at a rate that you determine before you even have a conversation. I mean, there's a lot of alternatives out there. And to your point, it's like the travel industry and all these other industries that have changed. So we've got technology playing into that. We've got the economy and the changes in the economy that have occurred. People really questioning how they are running their business. The trusted advisor services being part of that question. Is it the right price? How much do you think that's played into this is one question. And is it about to be over in the sense that people will transition? I mean, how many people are basically saying no to the billable hour? Well, it's a great question. Um, hard to get numbers on this because, you know, even though the accounting profession and even the legal profession do a lot of surveys, they're self-reported. So I think there's a lot of distortions. I mean, I can look at various accounting surveys from the AICPA, various state societies that say 30 to 40 percent of firms do value pricing. I think some of that is definitely the billable hour and drag. So for me, the real acid test is how many do fixed pricing and have gotten rid of their timesheet? Because in my mind, if you have the timesheet, you're not value pricing. I don't care what firms say about the defense of the timesheet. Oh, we need it for cost accounting. We need it for efficiency. That's ludicrous. It does none of those things. To run a firm with your timesheet is the equivalent of timing your cookies with your smoke alarm. By the time you see something on a timesheet, it is by definition no longer manageable. So it's a complete lagging indicator. By the time you see it on a timesheet, it's too late to do anything about it. It, it gives you, it, it's not a useful data point at all. And if firms get rid of that, then what I find is they they become better pricers much faster because they're disengaged from that idea that the time that they spend somehow determines the value to the customer. So we think, Nicole, it's around seven to 10 percent of firms worldwide that have moved away from hourly billing completely, meaning no timesheets and fixed prices up front. What does that look like? Say I'm an accountant, I'm working in a firm, a client has a problem. We're going to define the problem. So the problem is they need to do cost accounting on a new product. The team goes to work on that. The result is they've spent a certain amount of effort to resolve that issue. And we, of course, build them a certain amount that was predetermined. Is that what that looks like? Or is it getting people to sign a retainer for services? You know, what what is the optimal model? It could be both. It depends, I think, on the nature of the relationship with the customer I mean, I have seen legal firms, for instance, that do lots of litigation on behalf of, say, a customer who, who might be an insurance client, you know, with lots of different cases, just put them on a retainer and say, we'll handle everything that comes up for X amount per month. And, you know, yeah, some we're, we're going to lose on, some we're going to win big on, but overall it's going to work out. It's kind of like a portfolio approach, right? We don't put all our eggs in one basket. We spread the risk around. Or it could be, if you're an accountant, you can forecast what the customer is going to need in the upcoming coming year. You know, we know they're going to need tax work. We know they're going to need their bookkeeping, their their audit, their review, uh, other compliance aspects, and maybe even some advisory services. And you can put those in there into a fixed price agreement for an entire year. So we like the idea of bundling. We like the idea of, of trying to get the customer to sign an access level agreement or a service level agreement or a fixed price agreement for up to a period of time, usually one year. That, that's more so in the accounting world than in the legal world when projects do come up that aren't 
inside of those agreements, you first have a value conversation with the customer. You sit down and you say, okay, what are we trying to achieve here? What's the desired outcome? That determines the value. What we're doing with value pricing is we're pricing the customer not the service. And I think that's a big disconnect with a lot of people. They they think they're pricing services or having a menu price like McDonald's where we're all paying the same for the, the value meal or the Big Mac, but that's not value pricing. Value pricing means you're pricing the customer, not the services, because value is subjective. It's in the hearts, minds, and souls of each buyer, and everybody's value is different. Value is not a number. It's a feeling. By offering the customer options for that particular service, you let them decide what kind of value price trade-off they want to make, just like every other business on the planet gives us options, right? I can fly first class, business class coach. I can stay in a presidential suite, a junior suite, or a regular room. Well, why is it for my accounting or law firm or advertising agency, I get one price, take it or leave it? That's crazy. Give the customer options. You'll find that most people will pick the middle option. And then that marginal revenue between the middle and the bottom option goes straight to the bottom line because you're differentiating based on service that really doesn't add anything to the costs. So that's how it looks in a firm that value prices. They start with a value conversation on everything, whether it's a a year's worth of services or just a one-off type engagement. There's a value conversation to determine what is it that you're really trying to achieve. It's not what do you need, it's what are you trying to achieve. You know, I think that is a great point and it really brings it into focus by giving options. They understand the difference. So you're likely to have customers that are happier with the resulting services because they were involved in determining the level of service. You know, I'll say it that way, even though it's probably specific features or offerings that they're saying yes or no to make the point of, hey, I bought, you know, the top level service, so I expect it. Or I know I didn't buy the top level service. I have a more appropriate, moderate feeling about what my expectation That's a great point, Nicole, that it does help manage the customer's expectations, right? If you buy a coach ticket on an airline, you know you're going to be back in cattle class. But if you buy a first class ticket, your expectations are completely different, right? I'm going to get my champagne. I'm going to get my warm Mrs. Fields cookie. I mean, your expectations are much higher. The airline set that going in based upon the price. They use price as a way to manage those expectations. Ron, can you describe a success story, a place where either a firm went out and implemented a value pricing type of model and it either resulted in either just stronger revenue, more clients, uh, more retention, really a success story where a listener has the opportunity to influence how they are operating their practice or their firm's practice. They can say, yeah, I look at this success story as an example of how we could implement this and have similar success. Wow. We've got literally hundreds that I hear from some are posted on our website at parasage.com under trailblazers. And these are not just accounting firms, they're law firms, they're ad agencies, they're IT consulting firms, those types of things. Lots of stories up there. I get totally inspired by, you know, individual stories because what they say, the common thread that runs through them all is this doesn't just transform your practice, it transforms your life. I mean, I could point to my own firm. When we did this back in 1989, you know, I made every mistake under the book. I was scared to death of doing it. I was scared to death of what my customers would think. The first time I did a fixed price agreement was in a bar on the 19th hole of a golf course. And when I explained to my existing customer why I wanted to give him a fixed price, set up his payment terms around his cyclical cash flow, bundle in unlimited access, give him a value guarantee where if he wasn't happy, he'd only have to pay what he thought it was worth, bundle in unlimited access. He looked at me and said, Baker, it's about time. 
he said, you know, I have to price everything in my business up front and you get to cushy job of, you know, making sure you make a profit on every minute that you spend. He said, that's just not the real world. And I thought, wow, what a reaction. And I got that reaction from other customers too. So when I did it, it made my life easier. It allowed me to get rid of some low value customers and basically put more customers, new customers into my first class section, charging them a higher price. It allowed us to operate with fewer customers. Very counterintuitive point, but fewer customers equals more profit because you become more focused and you can usually add more services to an existing customer more profitably than going out and chasing new customers. So I guess I'd point to myself. I could also point you to a guy up in New Zealand. He's in the North Island. He's one of our Verisage colleagues. And his case study is is in my book, Implementing Value Pricing. But he lives in a town, Nicole, of 6,000 people, two-thirds of which are farmers. He's earned over a million dollars in tips and customers giving him tips for helping them achieve their dreams, selling their farm, buying a farm, selling a business, whatever. And he made the transition to value pricing in 2000. It's just set him apart basically from all of his competitors, just incredibly enables the bottom line. But it also, I think, becomes a lightning rod for talent because if you can go out into the marketplace and say to you know top talent, hey, if you come work here, we'll treat you like an adult. You don't have to do a timesheet. You don't have to account for every six minutes of your day. We're going to try you to do the right thing. People love that because they're knowledge workers. All sorts of success stories out there. Really hard to choose just one. That idea that I can work with a client and service the client and really get to the best outcome. Being attentive, understanding it's business and they have to use their time effectively. But I think that idea of they can't have a conversation or explain something further or make sure something's clear or do that additional piece of research that might lead to some piece of information that would affect the business outcome outcome because they're concerned. It's great to have that flexibility so that they can do that work and not be concerned that it would be questioned on a timesheet as part of an hourly build situation. Or it puts them over budget. That's why, you know, another thread that runs through this theme is effectiveness is far more important than efficiency. Billable hours and timesheets tend to measure efficiency, but we can be completely efficient at doing the wrong thing. What I'm concerned about from a knowledge worker or professional is effectiveness. I want an effective heart surgeon, not an efficient one. Effectiveness means you do the right thing. That's whatever it takes. If it takes more time, it takes more time. Was Einstein efficient? Was Einstein on budget? Who cares? He was really, really effective. There's a quote in business development that you know, no one remembers that you picked the lowest cost vendor, right? They just remember if the outcome was what was expected. Absolutely. There's a lot happening in the professional services space. We've talked about technology. We've talked about these alternative pricing. Is there a company out there that has said this change to value pricing has created their brand, has been part of their brand, so they've been able to grow their business or use value pricing as really their tagline of how they've grown their business and had more success? Is there a company out there? There are actually quite a few, and I can only think of a few off the top of my head, but one is Crispin Port. Porter, who's in the advertising agency business. I think they're out of Miami, Florida. They're one of the most highly respected um, advertising agencies out there. You know, a lot of award winners, very creative. They do nothing by the hour and they don't even do timesheets. And they've been operating that way now for some 14 years. They have a thousand employees. It works really well for them as a differentiator from other advertisers. There's another advertising firm in New York called Anomaly that does the same type of thing. In terms of using pricing for branding, which I think can be very effective. There's a great example of this, a legal firm in Melbourne, Australia, 
called Moores, M-O-O-R-E-S. They use value pricing, but they call it MAP, Moores Agreed Pricing. And if you go to their website, they have a whole page on their website that describes Moores Agreed Pricing. Now they do litigation, they do IP, they do corporate work, they offer a value guarantee and they give full prices up front. They use change requests when there's scope creep and they give their customer certainty and that's part of their brand. It's been an enormous competitive differentiation for them. There's also a firm called View Legal in Brisbane, Australia that does the same thing. So there's lots of different examples out there across all different industries. And we're seeing more and more of it, which is really encouraging. Fantastic content. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Other than if people want to learn more, they can check out my website at verisage.com, which is the think tank that I started to, to spread these ideas and really help professionals that are committed to killing the billable hour and the timesheet to make this transition. There's lots of articles up there and blog posts and there's trailblazer case studies. And I also, Nicole, do my own radio show, as you said in the intro, The Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy. And we've interviewed many guests around this topic and knowledge workers and and why the timesheet doesn't fit into a knowledge economy. It was designed for an industrial economy. And that show runs every Friday live on Voice America. And you can find all the archive shows at thesoulofenterprise.com along with show notes and other interesting resources. So lots of different ways out there to get all sorts of information on this topic. Fantastic. Ron, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you, Nicole. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Thank you.